Well, I trust that you all have had a good Thanksgiving week, uh, whether you were celebrating alone as a family or whether or not you had others around you, uh, that it's been a great week and a great time of being able to give thanks as well as connectedness with relationships. And I realize that we are living in a time where there's a little bit of, of, of unsettledness and some shifting going on. I guess that's just 2020 for us. But we as a church are trying in our ministry to be very, very sensitive um, and careful and yet at the same time understanding that biblically we have a responsibility and a joy to continue our ministry, even in light of, of some restrictions and, and changing dynamics that are going on. And one of them that I want to mention, I mean, several were mentioned in the video uh, announcements, but one of them that I want to mention um, is that Lucy and I recognize that we are still early in our, uh, the stage of the interim, and we're still getting to know you all. Um, and so some of the current restrictions that we are facing uh, just kind of inhibits some of that. And so we have been thinking, or at least I've been thinking over the last week, what can we do as an alternative? And so here's something that I'd like to just throw out, and I will give you more details next Sunday about how it's practically going to work. So here's my idea. And that is uh, most of us are very comfortable with technology and have been using it either in business or from the church or for those of you who are online that you're uh, part of our worship service on these Sundays. But Lucy and I still want to get to know you and still continue our opportunity to develop relationships. And so one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to be opening up some opportunity for people to make appointments to get to know me or get to know Lucy and I together as a couple using some of the technology, whether it's Zoom, whether it's Google Meet, whether it's FaceTime, whether it's even Microsoft Teams. Uh, we can use any or all of those. And we're going to give you the opportunity to be able to engage with Lucy and I. Now, for those of you who have physically not been able to be present with us um, in these last months, this may be a great opportunity for us to get to know you who are a part of the church family, though physically on a Sunday you can't be here, but is to have some time together using some of this technology. So starting next Sunday, we will give you the specifics. How can you sign up for some time like that? How will it all work? We'll work those details out this week and be ready next Sunday to give you the specifics in case you would like to take advantage of it because that will give us another opportunity without masks for us to be able to get to know people face-to-face uh, -face, yet not have to worry about uh, violating any of the restrictions that we're under at least for these next couple of weeks. We are in an Advent season. Hard to believe. already almost December, isn't it? Um, and the sermon series uh, for our Advent season is going to specifically look at the Christmas story. And we're going to be looking at those specific times when four different occasions, angels came and had a message. And the message they delivered literally created chaos for the audience that was receiving that message. So we're going to be looking at each one of those four times over the next four Sundays in anticipation. And I really hope that this Advent season, as celebrated by us at Lakewood, is not just a time where we do the holidays, but rather is engage with the Christmas story on a very, very personal level. And to begin things this morning, I guess I want to ask you, have you seen this following video? So how would, surprised would you have been if you had been at that kind of an event? I mean, just imagine, you are sitting in the food court, you're eating your lunch, and you're probably wondering a little bit about the presents you still have to buy, or maybe you're pondering how much of your budget you have already blown, 
or the groceries that you still have to pick up on, on the way home yet? Or when you get home, what decorations have yet to be put up around the house? I mean, that's just life. That is normal, routine thinking. You're, you're going through shopping experiences. You're eating your meals. You're thinking through budgets. You're wondering about your relationships. Surprises only happen when we are just experiencing the routine, ordinary events of life. And then suddenly, out of the blue, the unexpected occurs, and that's when we're caught off guard. And in some cases, we're never the same again. That's exactly where the Christmas story begins. Not the days or even weeks prior to what we celebrate as Christmas, but literally almost a year in advance. It begins in Luke chapter 1, and the story is about an older, almost retired couple by the name of Zachariah and Elizabeth. And this older couple, their life has settled into a mundane existence, and you could say for them that life is on cruise control. Let me give you a little bit of context in case you're unaware of Luke chapter 1 and some of the background to it. Let's begin with, who is this guy, Zachariah? Well, he is a priest, a Jewish priest, and he is in one of the 24 divisions of priests who regularly would come to the temple in Jerusalem and fulfill the Old Testament religious rituals. So each division had a two-week period, a duty rotation, when they would come and come to Jerusalem. So on their kitchen calendar, Zachariah and Elizabeth had these two weeks circled in red when she knew and he knew he would be gone on this trip. Now, the priest had specific duties every single day, and these duties were outlined and they were structured, they were put into order, so all the things that they were doing were like a well-oiled machine that just constantly operated. Zachariah is an older man. He has done his duty rotation so many times, he could do it in his sleep if necessary. So nothing about his being in Jerusalem, nothing about the duties he is performing there in the temple were extraordinary or unusual or remarkable in any way. Now let's add on top of that something else about the context. And that is God has been silent for 400 years. There has not been a prophet speaking for God. There has not been a divine miracle that's amazed anybody in over four centuries. So even though the priests continue to offer daily sacrifices, even though daily they lead people in the temple in prayers beseeching that God would act on their behalf, nothing is happening and nothing has happened in a really long time. There's a third context or contextual detail that's important to understand, and that is we need to consider Zechariah and Elizabeth's personal life. God has been silent there as well. Everything that is said about them in verse 6 is true. Look at Luke chapter 1 and starting at verse 6. And this couple, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Okay, that's true about them. But look at the very next verse, and what is the very first word? But, but. 
But even though they're righteous, even though they are blameless before God, God has not answered their prayers for a baby. Which means all of her life, Elizabeth has borne the painful title, barren. So here we have some really good people with some really deep wounds just quietly going about the routines of their life. Interesting, I think their personal life mirrors what's going on in the nation at this time. Life is on cruise control when the unexpected occurs. When a surprise literally takes their breath away and suddenly their life is now strapped to a cruise missile. (laughs) Zechariah was given a little bit of a hint that something may be a little different going on when the roll of the dice selected him to go into the temple on that day and offer the incense for the prayers of the people. Now this holy place that he went into was where God said, I will meet with my people. And in that very place, an angel shows up according to Luke chapter 1. And notice in verse 12, Zechariah is first of all troubled. Why is he troubled? Because he's supposed to be the only one in there. Old Testament law very specifically dictated that only one person could go into the holy place. There's someone else in there with him. He's troubled by that. But notice the second thing. It says he was gripped by fear. Fear because the angel's appearance, though human-like in a lot of ways, bore the characteristics of heaven and kind of spoke of of a glory that's not here on earth. Well, the cruise missile ride was not just what his eyes saw. It's what his ears also heard. Because the 400 years of silence is now broken. The angel came to deliver a message, and that message is so out there. Look at verse 15. Here's the message. This son that you're going to have is going to be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. But notice earlier, that the angel said in verse 13, what's he begin with? Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Okay, if you were Zechariah, wouldn't you immediately begin to ask yourself, which prayer are you talking about, Lord? My personal prayer? Though I wish we could have children? Or prayers for the nation? Well, actually it's going to be both. And so the angel begins to describe, yes, you're going to have a baby. It's going to be a son. Name him John. You're going to have incredible joy over his birth, but then a lot of other people are going to have incredible joy over his birth as well. And that's why the angel then went on to describe. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Verse 16, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, Zechariah was a priest, and he would know that the angel was literally talking about a prophecy that was given in the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. 
And he's quoting from chapter 3, verse 1, and then some verses in chapter 4. Let me read them to you. Malachi 3, 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. That prophecy is talking about how God was about ready to send the Messiah. And now the angel coming and talking about this prophecy revealed that Zechariah's soon-to-come son would be the promised forerunner that would prepare people for the arrival of the Messiah. Well, the personal missile ride continues. Because look at how Zechariah responds here in chapter 1 of Luke, starting at verse 18. He asks a very simple question. How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And what did the angel say in response to that question? Verse 19 and verse 20. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Whoa, why did Zechariah get that kind of a reaction from the angel? Well, think about what's going on in Zechariah and Elizabeth's hearts. Back in verse 7, when the angel speaks of a pregnancy, he is poking at old wounds. Remember, Elizabeth's title, barren. The couple's biological clock is wound down. The deep longings for a child have been buried. These wounds of being childless have been bandaged up in resignation. So when Zechariah asks, how shall I know? It reveals something about his heart. This guy wants a guarantee. Why? Because he's scared to believe. He's scared to hope. I think he's scared to go home and tell Elizabeth. (laughs) And why is he scared? Because to believe, even in our day, or to hope, puts a person in the vulnerable position of potentially experiencing disappointment. Now, the angel came to give good news. He says that himself there in verse 19. And what do we normally do when we receive good news? I don't know about you, but I can't wait to share it with other people. So there's a lot of humor going on here in what happens. So when Zacharias is struggling to believe and the angel identifies that there in verse 20, Zechariah, well, you're going to have to remain silent. You're not going to be able to share this good news. So imagine Zechariah going home and trying to communicate to Elizabeth what happened or what's going to happen. And yet when we come to the end of the passage, verse 24 and verse 25, Elizabeth does indeed become pregnant. And listen to her comment in verse 25. 
She says, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. That little phrase she uses, the Lord has looked on me, literally means God has shown favor. God has shown grace. See, here's the point of the story that Elizabeth saw so clearly. God's grace was given to her, and in God's grace being given to her, her disgrace was removed. But what Elizabeth couldn't fully understand yet, because she didn't have enough perspective like we have perspective, now so thousands of years later, and knowing the story so well, that there's some wonderfully good news for all of us this morning, here at the start of Advent. Let me put it to you like this. The surprising initiative of God injects unexpected hope into our lives. See, we're given this story not to be entertained by it, not just to understand it, but literally to enter into it because we are so like this older couple. Our lives, for so many of us, have become routine and very predictable. We're going through the motions. In fact, it is so familiar to us, we could operate most days with our eyes almost completely shut. And yet, like this couple, and yet below the surface, all is not well. We have our own set of deep longings, our own set of painful wounds that we're trying to manage with a distorted theology of resignation. And God, well, God seems to have disappeared off of our radar screens. We haven't heard from him in a really long time. And oh yeah, we don't, we don't doubt that he's out there, but that's exactly how it feels. He's out there. He is way out there. But the fantastic news that the angel came to deliver that's almost too good to believe is much like the C.S. Lewis story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that the country of Narnia that's been locked in perpetual winter for so long, good news is spreading that Aslan the lion is on the move. A thaw is beginning. And as our God takes initiative, like he took initiative here in Luke chapter 1, as he takes initiative, he intends for it to inject hope into our lives. How? Well, that's right where the story here in Luke 1 of Elizabeth and Zechariah should become part of our story. You see, woven into the events of, of what we've just been looking at here in Luke 1, 5 to 25, are three very powerful elements of hope. And they're linked together like a chain. So the first element builds into the second, and then the first two then build into the third. And I'm sure there are some of us here this morning that could use a good shot of hope. And this story, which is the beginning of the larger Christmas story that we're going to be looking at in the coming weeks, reveals how hope is injected into our lives in three different ways. Let's look at each one of those three, one after another. First, hope begins by believing that God is on the move. God's on the move. In fact, you can't read this story 
or any of the biblical stories for that matter without realizing that, the God in, that our God in heaven is an initiator. In fact, he loves to take initiative. God is not passive. God is never restrained. Yet beyond and behind what we can see with our eyes, there is a larger story that is unfolding. There are divine plans that are moving towards fulfillment. And here's what we often forget. That when our God moves, it creates chaos for us. Why? Because it upsets our apple cart. It changes our plans. It shatters our routines. I mean, just think about some of the stories we know from the scriptures. Abraham, for example. God comes to him and says, I want you to go on a lifelong camping trip. Ladies, how many of you would be excited about that? He comes to Moses and says, Moses, it's time for you to quit uh, caring for sheep. I want you to go back to Egypt and free my people from slavery. David gets anointed as king, but then spends the next seven years of his life running for his life. James, John, Peter, Andrew, minding their own business as they are in the family fishing business, when Jesus shows up and says, drop everything and follow me. Drop everything? We can't box God in. He is liable to show up at any time to start something extraordinary in the middle of our most ordinary moments. Folks, God is faithful, but he's also notoriously unpredictable. The reality of that has happened a number of times in my life. It wasn't too long ago when I was in my mid-50s, and I was in a season of my life when I thought for sure God had set me aside on the shelf. If you would have talked to me at that time of my life, I would have told you that it was my conv conviction that God and, and the angel Gabriel had often discussed me and could not come up with anything that they would trust me to do for him. Very painful season. <laughs> so I was just working at the front desk of a hotel, had been doing such for a couple of years, when I, in checking people in one afternoon, met the guest speaker who was coming to our church for that weekend. And we got to talking just for a few minutes, and um, I asked if I could have breakfast with him, to which he agreed. And so on Saturday morning, uh, we sat down together and, he started just asking questions about why was this seminary grad checking people into hotels at the front desk. And I just kind of told him my story and told him some of my painful longings. And he just began to ask further questions and about ministry and the pastorate. And our conversation that morning reawakened a desire that had long been buried, and that is to help churches as an interim. Pretty scary stuff to have a desire reawakened by the Lord. <laughs> and yet, it was not two weeks late, less than two weeks later, I got a phone call late one night from a church that I'd had a, a couple of conversations with in which they invited Lucy and I to come and for me to be their interim. That started a new chapter in our story for the last 10 years of being an interim 
pastor. And I've never been the same. <laughs> Folks, God's on the move. And when we see that in His Word, and then we identify it as true, and we begin to count on it, hope begins to stir in our hearts. It stirs there because we realize we're not alone. And that life is not a set of just random events that occur with no meaning. No, there is a God in heaven and He takes initiative in our lives. Now let's add to that the second element of hope that comes right out of this passage. And let's link it with the first. So yes, God is on the move, but then second, He's doing what He said. We can count on the fact that our God will do what He has promised. The angel's message here in Luke 1 to Zechariah was simply stating that the promise made through Malachi hundreds of years earlier was going to be fulfilled now. Our personal sense of hope is really tied to our view of God's heart. For example, Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, well-known verse, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. And then he asks two questions. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Good questions. What does your heart respond? Does he? Or how about Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 20? Abraham was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Are you persuaded this morning? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Or Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Folks, we've got a promise-keeping God. What he, do, he does, what he says, he will do. Okay, <clears throat> but what about those times when it looks like he's just silent? What about those times when our prayers just seem to bounce off the ceiling and don't get any higher? What about those times when I've waited and I've waited and I've waited and nothing happens? Okay, back into the text. What did the angel tell Zechariah? What were some of his final words after saying, you didn't believe me? about the things that will take place, look at verse 20, the last words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Ooh. God will act on His promise, not a moment early and not a moment late. But I don't know about you, but there have been plenty of times in my life when I have told God that as far as I'm concerned, his sense of timing was lousy. <laughs> and yet it's been at those times when he has reminded me of Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 3. 
For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and it will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It certainly, it will certainly come and will not delay. See, when we realize that our God, His heart, He will do what He has promised, when we realize that, it will begin to ignite a hope in us that we then will wait for Him. And by the way, that's why it's so good to be constantly reading in our Bibles regularly, because as we do, then we are going to be constantly reminded of God's promises. And He has His promises here in His Word, not to tease us or to torture us where we've got painful wounds, but to give us a sense of hope. God's on the move doing what he said. Now let's take those first two and link them now to the third element of hope. And that is God is on the move doing what he said for our good. Now there are a lot of good things that I'm sure all of us would enjoy God doing for us. But this story makes it really clear that what he is after is something for our ultimate good. And it's what he did for Elizabeth is what he wants to do for each one of us this morning. Notice how Elizabeth identified good is defined in two ways. First, in these very days in which we're living, God wants me to receive his grace. Again, that's what Elizabeth identified there in verse 25. The Lord has done for me in these days when he looked on me. Remember that phrase means When God's given me his favor, God's given me his grace. And Elizabeth was profoundly moved that God would give her a baby. (laughs) She didn't deserve it. She didn't earn it. God wasn't obligated in any way. It simply came to her by grace. In the same way, God wants me, God wants each of us to live profoundly aware of how we are a recipient of his grace grace. And grace is God giving me what I need, not necessarily what I want, and he's motivated out of his love and out of his compassion for us. And why is that so hard for us to get that right and to keep it right? Why why do I struggle? Why do I think that God will be good to me, but I've got to earn it? And I earn it by doing what's right and by staying away from what's wrong. Or I think I've got to deserve it. So I compare myself with other people. And for some, I compare myself to them and compare it to them. I'm looking pretty good. But then I compare myself to another individual, and boy, I do not measure up to his gifts or her gifts. I don't measure up to their influence, their accomplishments, their education. And I just take a nosedive. Or I think that God should feel obligated to be good to me. I mean, after all, I've consistently been in church, even when there's bad weather. I consistently give some of my money. And for goodness sakes, what about all those years of working in the nursery? I mean, changing dirty diapers should have earned me something with God. But when hope is injected into my life, based on grace that I have received, 
I gain a sense of freedom, a, a sense of liberation, and I'm, and I'm released from the bondage of trying to earn or deserve or obligate God to do good for me. And rather, I enter with joy each day knowing that He just loves me and my good is, my good matters to Him. <laughs> well, our good is not just defined by receiving His grace. Again, notice in verse 25 what Elizabeth said. In these days, God wants to remove our disgrace, just like he did for Elizabeth. And you do notice that she uses the word reproach. Hmm. That word describes a sense of shame, a sense of embarrassment, a sense of deep regret. That word reproach or disgrace pictures someone standing next to us, looking at us, and verbalizing, how could you? So disgrace are those faults that we have that both condemn us and humiliate us. See, our disgrace, these are not things we tend to openly talk about, but rather we choose to hide We choose to keep quiet about them. But they're deep, painful wounds that keep festering inside of us, and we guard them by a quiet resignation. And that's right where our God wants to bring a sense of hope. And how does He do that? He wants to remove that sense of reproach. He wants to remove that sense of disgrace. There are some of those wounds we have that need deep healing. There are some of those wounds that need deep cleansing, the deep cleansing experience of forgiveness. That's why I love Psalm 103, starting at verse 10. God does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love for those who fear Him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Are you here this morning and you need that? You need that cleansing experience of forgiveness that can be found only by asking for it on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. It can be yours. Some of us need a deep healing from some of those painful wounds. Isaiah Sapp. Chapter 61 and verse 1 is a prophecy that Jesus quotes at one point in his ministry when he was here on earth. And he said, it's speaking about me. When, he, when Isaiah the prophet says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Is there any brokenhearted people here this morning that need the binding care of Jesus Christ? He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoner. Anybody here feel captive? Anybody's life here feel dark? And you need freedom? I've been sent to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Literally, His grace. The news that the angel brought rocked Zechariah and Elizabeth's world 
And that's what God wants to do in our predictable, routine, stable lives too. He's notoriously unpredictable. For what we've seen is that the surprising initiative of God injects hope into our lives. How does it do that? By reminding us that He's on the move, doing what He has said for our 